Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me as always on Thursdays, the master of the universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, the troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans, the Generalissimo, the producer extraordinaire, not just of the Hugh Hewitt Show, but apparently now he's also claiming to be the producer extraordinaire of HotAir.com, Dwayne Patterson. <laughs> Dwayne, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that we can actually give you the title brother but uh but thanks for the tips over the last three weeks oh hey you know if if i'm sitting there and i'm basically uh setting off the day so that i'm providing the the tip and 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 the, and the material for the the first ed morrissey post of the day on hot air you know ed morrissey of course being the principal contributor of hotair.com i think that makes me by definition it adds to my portfolio. I'm the principal producer of hotair.com. I, I think everybody knows this. Well, um, I am I am going to issue a no comment other than to say that we're all just one big Salem Brotherhood here. And uh, we certainly appreciate the fact that you've pointed out some really great stories. And today, of course, wasn't the first one because I was I, I was working on uh, another story that we're going to talk no, about but it, here. It, it's it, as, as but we're it's, taping this. As we're taping this, it's above the fold, as they say. It is above the fold, and it is getting plenty of attention. Uh, George Gascon's decarceration policies allowed a known gang member with a long rap sheet to get a that uh, would have been that would have been in jail should have been in prison for at least thirty-two months. Instead, they cut a deal and let him out on probation, despite the fact that it was his second it was his second felony with a firearm. And he conducted an ambush of two El Monte police officers, murdering both of them before getting shot and killed by police himself. Um, and, uh, you know, this is um, uh, this is entirely no on comment. Gascon. And there's been no comment by Gascon. On no, this. no, there has been a comment. I mean, I, I not I, not not a mea culpa. Well, no, of course not. He says, "Oh, the comment was well, this. This was handled consistent with other cases." In, in, in right, our they all suck. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, which is the reason why he's facing a recall. And it's worth pointing out too, as you and I talked about a little bit last night um, in the show prep for the podcast, uh, that uh, <laughs> that Gascon just got read out by the appellate court a week prior to this. For doing the same damn thing, for ignoring three strikes laws, for ignoring uh, sentencing enhancements because of his uh, desire to uh, to pursue a decarceration policy, which is really legislative rather than executive in nature, and um, flat out ignoring the law. And that the reason why it was in the appellate court to begin with is because the union that represents his prosecutors took him to court to force him to start following the law. His own people. His right? own people. Yeah. yeah. The people who are look, left because look, there, a lot of them resigned already. Yeah. Look, and, and it's not just prosecutors that are leaving. Angelinos, even Angelinos that are here illegally, have left the state for a safer climate. And I mean safer, like less crime. Right. The safer, the safer crime element of Baja, California, Mexico, 280,000 people that used to reside in Los Angeles illegally have decided that crime's a little uh, rough here. It's not safe to live here anymore. I can make my illegal money uh, working from home in, in Cabo or working in Ensenada somewhere. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's, and, and that's astounding for me as a, as a native Angelino to hear that Baja California is safer 
than Los Angeles deemed, County. Deemed it and perceived to be safer than L.A. because of crap like what Gascon is 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 yeah. perpetrating on the city. I mean, for those of you who, who <laughs> I mean, Tijuana is uh, is is crime infested, right? Baja, yes. they they were kidnapping Americans down in, in in some places in Baja, California, not all that long ago. I mean, it really has been. It didn't always used to be that way in Baja either. Baja used to be fairly, um, fairly tame once you got until, outside of Tijuana. Cartel, anyway. Yeah, until the cartels got uh, took over. Right, until the t- cartels took over, it was actually once you got south of Tijuana, it was a pretty nice place to go visit. Um, but it hasn't been that way in a while, like a couple of decades at least. Right. And so the fact that Angelinos think it's safer on that side of the border really tells you a lot we've, about how they're perceiving their their own we've, home turf. We've become we've become the third world's um excrement hole that we've accused interplaces of being. Um yes, and it's because of people like Chesa Boudin in San Francisco and George Gascon in Los Angeles right who are trying to pursue policies that really should be enacted through legislatures. I mean they're bad policies anyway, but if you're going to pursue that what you need to do is you need to change the law to reflect that, not simply refuse to enforce the law when you're the law an, enforcement it, officer of the county. Let's let's call it what it is. It's just it, it's legalizing it's legalizing anarchy is what it is. It is. It's it's dereliction of duty is what it actually is. I yeah. mean, um, Chesa Boudin got the boot over it. George Gascon is about to as well, because, um, again, as we were mentioning last night, uh, the. Um, the uh, they have enough petitions now. At least technically speaking, they have enough petitions. Assuming they have that they're all valid to get they the have recall. Petitions, and as far as the motivation to get him out, they, they've got. He has two dead cops on his hands. Yeah, in spades. They've got it in spades, and you know they're still collecting signatures because they've got until July six to submit them. And right. I would imagine t- today the they are, are lining running, up around the block to sign he, those he, petitions. Uh, in, in in Rosemead, in in El Monte, in Cudahy, and all those communities. All those and, all those places along the six oh five corridor are are six oh five corridor up up against up against the you know the San the 60, Gabriel Valley. Yeah, up yeah. against the sixty. Yeah. I mean uh, if, if, I mean that's that's uh, East Los Angeles uh is not going to be happy with that outcome. And I mean East Los Angeles is a tough area. It's a high crime area. And while certainly that area has issues with uh, policing, some some um, parts of policing, they don't want to live in a high crime area either. They want a, they want an effective police report, uh, a, a police force, and they want people prosecuted. Correct. And the idea that they're somehow happy about letting the prison opening up the prisons, letting everybody out so they can run around and commit more crime in places like El Monte and Cudahy and Bell and Bell Gardens and, and all of those places along that um, uh, 605, 60 corridor there is insane. Politically, it's insane. And it's the same type of thinking, by the way, which has led to um, the uh, Democrats getting their ass kicked in the Rio Grande Valley this week in a special election in Texas's 34th congressional district. Boy, are there Latino Democrats um, in neighboring districts that are hopping mad at the at the uh, C and the, and the party. Uh, they feel kind of abandoned right now, don't they? Uh, they do indeed. They do indeed, and for good reason. 
because they are abandoned. They are abandoned, yes. <laughs> and, and Henry Cuellar and Vicente Gonzalez, uh, yep. among others, have been trying to, you know, light the fires, right? I mean, it's 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 almost like, you know, they've they've lit the fires to alert um to alert Rohan of the danger in Gondor, and Rohan's going, No, I'm sorry, it's just not politically correct to oppose, you know, uh, we should let Mordor be Mordor. <laughs> now it's 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 a Mordor crisis. They're going. It's a Mordor crisis. It's a Mordor crisis. And 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 the DCCC is saying what we really need to do is have outreach to Mordor. Yeah, exactly. Now, to everybody that you know shares my view, that it would be really nice to finish that border wall on the southern border to keep the drugs out and and uh, you know stem the you know the human trafficking and all that stuff. Um, if you want to get that border wall actually built, you know when that's going to get done. That's going to get done in about 2025 after the 24 presidential election. Hispanics go for the Republican nominee 60-40. Then you're going to see Democrats say, let's build that wall. Yeah, they may say it. They may say it in January 2023 after after they get their asses kicked in the midterms. But which I mean, they're going to do what yeah. they're going to do. I mean. And part of the reason is the fact that they are uh, that Hispanic voters have gotten sick and tired of Democrats and their and their obsession with woke politics. I mean, and it's it, it goes beyond the border. And, you know, Tom Emmer talked, uh, talked to Politico about this, too. Politico had a long article about this this morning, about how furious Latino Democrats are. And they're they're furious because they felt that the DCCC didn't help out in Texas 34. And the excuse that Sean Patrick Maloney, who's got his own problems at the moment, gave them was, well, that district is going away. Which is true. It's going away. I mean, uh, Flores wanted a district that will uh, that will disappear uh, in redistricting after after this session of Congress. So she's actually now going to run against Vicente Gonzalez in Texas 15, which is right next door to this. Right. It, and he's going right. to have to face, uh, you know, Myra Flores um, in that uh, in, in an election in November. While she's got this momentum, while she is the the youthful female Latino um, uh, spokesperson for Republicans in the Rio Grande Valley, I'm, you know, this is not a district that is terribly. I mean, even though it's you know it's it's only a D, uh, Vicente Gonzalez's district. I don't know what the reconfigured district is going to be, but Vicente Gonzalez's district is only D plus three. Texas 34 was only D plus five. It's it's going to be at least 80% Hispanic. And the Hispanics are sick and tired of Democrats. Um, if I was Vicente Gonzalez, I'd be looking, I'd be, I'd be starting to send my resume around to the different think tanks, um, especially ones that might, you know, um, slap some Democrats across the face and tell them to wake up. This is not an issue of spending money in Texas 34. This is an issue of Democrats resolutely refusing to deal with the issues that actually matter to voters, especially in the RGV, which is border crisis, border crisis, border crisis, inflation, gas prices, and crime. Those are the six issues. The first three are border crisis and the other ones. Yes. None of the other ones, by the way, are there should be a drag queen in every school. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's that's spectacular, too, especially when we are uh, in a debate after the school shooting about whether we harden schools or not, uh, hardening schools is not um, 
is not putting a drag queen up there with bolt-ons, right? That, that's, right. That's, that's not exactly what, what we had in mind for, for hardening up a school. Um, our friend Sean Trendy over at Real Clear Politics did a piece on um, this movement of Latino voting blocks towards um, towards Republicans by the you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 point range in, in, in some cases. And I saw online uh, on Twitter a couple of days ago, somebody called Obama's portrait. It was a you know lefty, uh, lefty uh, person responds to Trendy saying, well, why are Latinx voters turning red question uh, mark? And our friend David Burge, Iowa Hawk, says, well, perhaps the answer is right there in your own question. Maybe not referring to them as Latinx voters because Hispanics don't like that much. Uh, no, they don't. <laughs> No, I think it's what three percent. Three percent of them. That shows you're not resonating with the concerns that they actually really have. Yeah, no, this is um, um, this this is it's it's a nonsense approach. This is a this is a fantasy approach. Democrats have constructed this elaborate fantasy, and they're about to have it. They're about to have that fantasy completely destroyed in the midterm elections. I'm not even sure it'll yeah. wake them up to it though. Um, which is which, and the fantasy is that their immutable characteristic priority politics is somehow going to lead to greater cohesion. It's not. It's demolishing the party. It's delusion. It's it's, it's, it's just, an it's absolute delusion. It's a it's yeah. a delusion. The, what matters to voters isn't divvying things up by on, on the basis of immutable characteristics. That only matters in faculty lounges and progressive salons. Um, uh, that can be found usually in Washington, D.C. What matters to voters is crime, inflation, gas prices. And if you're yes, in the Rio Grande, right. yeah, and if you're in the Rio, Rio Grande Valley, border crisis, border crisis, border crisis. I mean, that's yep. what matters to voters. And that was what the election showed on Tuesday. It's what the election's going to show in the midterms as well. And Henry Cuellar is another guy who's been it, who's been ringing this bell in his District parallels Vicente Gonzalez's. I right. mean, all he, these are right in the Rio Grande Valley, right on the border. These are right. the guys he, who know, and nobody's listening to them. Right, because because what the, what they're being uh, forced to campaign on, or what what the the national party is trying to you know, give them support over, is drag queens and January sixth, and um, you know, just just nonsense, right? Yep, and 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 and, and gun seizures. You, you you think seizing guns is a real winning message when people are, are flooding across the border right now uh, with, with with drugs and and, uh, and well human no but I mean but I mean we can get take this right back to Gascon too they're talking about passing all sorts of laws that will restrict gun ownership well you've got district attorneys progressive district attorneys mind letting, you who won't enforce felons. the laws won't enforce the laws that they already have on the books to deal with gun violence. I mean, exactly. this guy should have been in prison on the day he conducted that ambush for for gun for, right for a gun uh, a gun felon. He was a felon in, in possession of a gun. That's an automatic prison sentence in California. He was it's a, it's a it was a second strike on him, um, and Gascon let him off. Gascon in his office let him off on probation. And now you have two dead police officers as a result of that. Plus yep. he's dead too, for that matter. If he was in prison, he'd probably still be alive. So, well, well, that's the thing is if he would have survived this standoff and he would have, he would have lived to see the day, 
you, you think Ascone would have put him away for 20 long for, for killing the cops or, or gone for life? I don't think he would have. Well, I think he wouldn't have had any choice. In, in California, the the, uh, the premeditated murder or even or even murder in, in commission of a felony is automatically life without parole. It's it it should be, but it would not surprise me if if uh, if Gaston uh, Scone were to have stayed long term, they would have they would have uh, they would have knocked it down at some point and let him out. Yeah, possibly, and certainly they wouldn't. I mean, they would have. Uh, Gascon was telling his prosecutors not to show up for parole hearings to argue against uh, against parole releases too. It's another point that the. Uh, uh, prosecutors union. I, I didn't even realize that the prosecutors had a union until Gascon showed up. And now, and now they actually need one. Um, they, that's a, they, another reason why they, they were suing Gascon to well, enforce and the, the law. They, they shouldn't be, ne- the union shouldn't be a necessary thing. No, no, it shouldn't be a necessary thing. I mean, I, I actually have no problem with people organizing. If that's what the majority of workers want to do in a workplace, Correct. that's fine. But, but it's, but should, why, why, why is, is it necessary? necessary? Why is it necessary for right. professional attorneys to organize into a union? Well, we're finding out why in the Gascon era. Maybe it wasn't right. as necessary before, but it's certainly necessary now. Um, so Amazing. yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, uh, all right, let's turn our attention. I mean, let's turn our attention to, uh, energy policy because. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Before we do, though, yeah. on the basis of what's going on in, in South Texas and some other places, I understand that Hugh Hewitt has decided to branch out and he's now in the um, uh, campaign ad production business. I'm, yeah, I'm, assuming he, you're the, he, I'm assuming you're the producer extraordinaire for this, though. Yes, he uh, he dropped this on me uh, on the fly and said, boy, I, I, this is what we need to do. And and so I just like, uh, OK, threw it together. That's very Hugh, by the way. That's very Hugh. It's very Hugh. It turns out it's 50 seconds long. All that's perfect. Next, this, this could run in every campaign ad from dog catcher up to senator for for the, for this uh, for this 22 uh, midterm cycle. All that's necessary is the 10 second uh, disclaimer at the end. I'm Joe Bag of Donuts. And I approve this message, right? With, with the campaign website and the and the and the campaign number. Yep. That's the only that's the only thing that's necessary to tack on to the end of this cut. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. And then we're going to Washington D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. I actually did vote for the $87 billion before I voted against it. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. If you like your health care plan, you will be able to keep your health care plan, period. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. I'm Adam Laxalt, and I approve that message. <laughs> I'm Mayor Flores, and I approve that message. Um, yeah, the uh, the only thing that you're missing there, by the way, because I'm a critic, so I have to criticize, uh-huh. is is the... Um, is the inflation numbers? Yeah, I would I would have used the inflation numbers, or at least a clip of somebody talking about oh, this being I, the worst I inflation in forty that. years. I can do all that, but two of those were recent Democratic presidential contenders, sure, front runners, 
and two of them were actual Democratic presidents. Yeah. So that that was a narrow field. I mean, and, and all of them were basically screaming at people or yelling at people, right? Yep. Well, Obama wasn't really yelling. Well, as close as he gets. Yeah, Obama wasn't really much of a yeller, which was which was one of his better qualities, actually. <laughs> and John Kerry's not much of a yeller either. He's just got that sort of snobby, you know, flabby senatorial. Oh, you know, I, I actually voted for the eighty-seven million before, before I voted against it. Well, you know? again, this 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 was this was Hugh. He said, <laughs> "I just wrote the ad," and he, and he and he said, "Here's here's how it needs to be." And so I'm like, I'm like pulling, uh, I'm pulling video clips and, and throwing it all together. So anyway, that's what we did this morning. Well, there you go. So that's what you did this morning. We have another video clip. I want to move to energy policy because it's a disaster. And even the White House, I think, has finally started to wake up <laughs> to how big of a disaster they have created with their uh, attempts to shut down oil production and oil refining in the United States. Now, this started on day one, Executive Order 13990, imposed all sorts of new uh, obstacles and red tape to any sort of of new or expanded um, To fulfill Joe Biden's campaign promise that I'm going to end drilling. I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to shut this down. I'm going to shut it down. He's doing a better job at that than he did with the virus because he promised to shut down the virus, too. But he actually took steps on day one to shut down oil production. Well, he shut down because you can you can as a president actually, or at least uh, you know, in in uh, in concert with Congress, uh, you can actually shut down oil production and oil refining and oil transmission and all those sorts of things. And every step he's taken up until now has been to do that. Now right. suddenly, though, Dwayne, you've got um, Biden's energy secretary saying that. Oil producers really need to step up production for a while. And John Berman at CNN. Of all places. Of all places was like, uh, Wait what? A minute. Why, why the <laughs> hell what? would they do that? Yeah, you've got that clip, I understand, right? I do. Here we go. Five years from now, 10 years from now, are you telling me you want them drilling for more oil? You want the refineries putting out more gasoline in five or 10 years? What we're saying is today we need that supply increased. Of course, in five or 10 years, actually in, in the immediate, we are also pressing on the accelerator, if you will, to move toward clean energy so that we don't have to be under the thumb of petro dictators like Putin or at the whim of the volatility of fossil fuels. Ultimately, America will be most secure when we can rely mm-hmm. upon our own clean domestic production of energy. But that's the problem solar, for these companies. Wind, these companies are saying, you know, you're asking me to do more now, invest more now, when in fact, five or 10 years from now, we don't think that demand will be there. And the administration doesn't even necessarily want it to be there. Just one last question on Saudi Arabia. So, yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, he's got a point, doesn't he? Well, he's got a great point. And it's not even five or 10 years. They already started trying to shut down drilling in the United States and trying to shut down refining in the United States. Look, and they've you know, sh- they shut down the pipeline, the Keystone XL pipeline in the United happened, States. Look what happened two days ago. Two days ago at USC's campus in Los Angeles, John Forbes Carey, the climate czar, the guy that Joe Biden has allowed to infuse his climate... Uh, witchery his is his climate religion that is now 
because of a presidential decree, it infuses every agency and every policy has to run through the climate czar so that it it, it fulfills the commitment to get us to a, a net zero whatever. John Kerry, two nights ago, was at a event at USC, and he actually said, no, we're not going to produce more oil and gas. That's the last thing we need to do. No, right. no, 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 no. Not even 12 hours later, the White House issues a letter to oil, to big oil, demanding big oil respond to them in writing with why they aren't, why the hell aren't you doing your patriotic duty? Why aren't you doing, you're killing us here. We got to have more oil. And you're killing us, Smalls. <laughs> you're killing me, Smalls. And big oil's looking at the White House going, dude, really? Yeah, I mean. Karine Jean Pierre yesterday says it's their patriotic, patriotic du duty. It's their patriotic if, duty to produce if, the stuff that if, we told them that we're going to shut down. <laughs> if 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 big oil doesn't doesn't stop uh, uh, cease immediately, all this trying to plan ahead for the future and and move to something that they can survive with. If they don't quit that right now and immediately go back and bail our ass out of a political nightmare that we're that we got ourselves in. You're not being patriotic. And big oil's looking at them going, <laughs> um, do I know you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, <clears throat> I, I'm being a little bit lighthearted about this, but this actually has me very angry because this is this is a, a, a campaign it's of demagoguery that it's, is based it's on it's based on lies that are so bald and and yet still so ignored by the media. You know, I, I, I've been fact-checking Joe Biden's claims on ExxonMobil profits on, you know, for yeah. that matter, Marathon, BP. I've been doing this for almost a week now. I mean, you know how many fact, how many media fact-checkers have joined me in this effort? I, all it takes, by the way, is just to look at the quarterly reports. I right, mean, it's wait. not like it's intense here. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure your friend Glenn Kessler has been all over this. <laughs> That's Wait, it, you, man. Those are the you, fact checkers. You, you mean you mean Glenn Kessler hasn't been on this one? Well, not so far. Not so. I even tagged him on one of those. Just you know, well, a, a friendly tag, not even a call out tag. I just tagged him on it. I just well, well I wonder, not so far. Well, 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 is is he still worried about? Is he still worried about all the all the, you know, the Joey baby stories and and all the others? Uh, uh, you know, we we talked about gas prices going up around the kitchen table when I was growing up? Is he still on that stuff? Uh, yeah, he's still on that stuff. He still says that they're making oh. more money than God, that they don't pay taxes, that oh. that that their profits are going off the charts. And by the way, this is only the second dumbest set of claims coming out this week. The first, the first dumbest set of claims coming out this week is Ron Wyden's attempt to impose a windfall profits tax on oil companies. Of 21%. Of 21%. Thinking they, that, that 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 won't raise the price at all. That will actually right. have the opposite effect. It's going to discourage investment. It's going to so which means it's going to lower production, which means that prices are going to continue to go Gas up. Will be, it, it will be scarcer, right? Right. It, it, as a commodity, which right. will drive up the price this, even more. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. That's that's the dumbest. Look, that's the dumbest demagoguery this week. Corinne Jean Pierre. Why don't they just do their patriotic duty and lower prices? Just take one for the team. And just lower the price. Yes, yeah, it's idiotic. Okay, what's going to happen? Let's say the the collusion is there, and all of big oil says, "Damn it, you're right. We're going to suck it up for the next three months. Get over this hump together. We are going to. I don't care what. 
I don't care if oil is at $120 a barrel, we're going to price gasoline as though it were $60 a barrel, and we're just going to start charging $250 for, for, for gas. Let's say they did that. They're never going to, but let's say they did. What do you suppose is going to happen to gasoline in the United States if they were just magically to price it at $250? Uh, it will disappear. <laughs> and will. we will have gas lines. We will longer. have gas lines yes. all over again. Because that's and what happens. With, that's what happens with price caps. That's and, and, that's and the problem with price that, caps. And if that fantasy that the and delusion that the White House is calling for happened, if Big Oil did their patriotic duty and slashed the price of gas just arbitrarily, and we had the natural laws, as 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 much as the laws of gravity are in play, the physical laws of supply and demand would cause gas shortages miles long. And if that happened, you think the White House is going to say, well, it's not big oil's fault that we have these lines. No. Who's going to get the blame for it? Oil companies. Right. Right. So so why the hell would they ever even consider it? They're, they're not. They're not no. going to consider it because it's economic suicide. It's political suicide, too. It's just that this White House is too stupid to understand that. <laughs> it's it's this White House is literally they're they're in the they're in the ocean. The icebergs are are around them. The ship has already gone down. And this administration is is Rose trying to hang on to the effing door. Yep. No, this this administration is Rose trying to hang on to the effing door while prying uh, the consumer's cold, dead hands off their wrists and yes. letting them sink to the bottom of the ocean. Yes, yes. <laughs> By the way, we're almost out of time, but it just reminds me that one of the funniest, one of the funniest scenes in, in films was Jim Carrey's deconstruction of that in, um, in, <laughs> in Bruce, Bruce Almighty. Almighty. Bruce Almighty, yes. which was... <laughs> I, I can yes. i mean it's not a great film it's it's a it's a decent you know, it's a pretty decent film but it's not a great Un, film under niagara falls oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i'm standing here with katherine hepburn's mom <laughs> <laughs> it's a great scene it's yeah. a great scene yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. worth it it was worth paying the ticket to get in the theater to see this i think it's like 60 seconds of this deconstruction yeah, it, of <laughs> and 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 you know that wasn't scripted that was no of course not. that was totally carrie that was totally carrie doing that absolutely yeah all right well, we've come to the end of another great half hour in this podcast. Uh, what's coming up on tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show? Um, we're actually starting a new series that we haven't done before with uh, the Hillsdale Dialogue, which we're, we're interested to see what the reaction is. Um, everybody knows Larry Arn. Everybody knows the great work that Hillsdale does, right? Arn comes on every week. It's summer in Hillsdale. Arn is on his motorcycle going off who knows where. But what Hillsdale has provided, what they've done, is they actually took a lecture series of Larry Arn conducting a class on Aristotle. That's one of his things. He's an Aristotle uh, scholar, right? Right. So he took a graduate class of 10 to 12 students and actually conducted a course, and it was a four-camera shoot. So it's a, it's a full professional shoot of basically working through an, an Aristotle course conducted by Larry Arndt. And they cut these things up into segments that we can use for air purposes with Hugh doing all the wraps in and out and all that stuff. 
But this is going to be the first time you can actually watch a Hillsdale course be taught by Larry Arn for over oh, wow. the next 10 weeks. Great. An hour, a, an hour a week over the next 10 weeks. And it should be, I mean, I, I just pieced together the first one. And it's fascinating to watch Larry Arn deal with uh, a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-old kids and watching them think and watching them tweak with them to make them think. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to watch Larry Arn actually practice the craft of being a professor, not just running a college. But so that that's tomorrow. I mean, that's just me personally. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Absolutely. No, that's great. It's coming up tomorrow at uh, 6 a.m. Eastern time, right. 5 a.m. in God's time zone, 3 a.m. on the left coast. And uh, Dwayne, you can watch that. Uh, you can watch that through the universe where, you know, Dwayne is the master of the universe. You have to be a member of the universe, though. And if you're a member of the universe, you get the chance to do the after shows in the evenings with Dwayne. Dwayne's going to be. Inflation um, has not hit, by the way, the, the universe. It's the same price as it was a year ago. Not much else in America is, but our universe is still the same price it always was. Well, there you go. That's uh, I, I'd like to chalk that up to uh, to firm resolve. I suspect that might be that nobody's actually thought to do anything about it, though. But that's okay. Either way, it's still the same price. <laughs> so get in now while you can. Get in before get in before Hugh actually takes a look at the price and goes, "What the hell?" <laughs> get, get in now. Get in now before they tie it to the prime rate. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. Well, Dwayne Gentilissimo Patterson, thanks again for uh, for another blast here, and we'll talk to you again next week, sir. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. All right, stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up right after this. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Joe Biden has labored mightily for the past year to blame everyone but himself for the rampant inflation plaguing America. In remarks last week, he blamed Vladimir Putin and corporate greed rather than Biden's own energy policies. But Biden flat out lied about ExxonMobil, which he said made more money than God. Biden scolded a reporter by asking him to report Exxon's profits for this quarter and finish Exxon, start investing, start paying your taxes. In fact, a review of ExxonMobil's last quarterly report showed they paid a 32% rate on their taxable income for Q1 and spent almost $82 billion on costs and investments. Later, the Financial Times reported that Biden and his team were shocked to find out that capital investors were reluctant to invest in oil and gas production expansion. That is a direct result of Biden's demonizing of the American oil and gas sector for the last several years. The demagoguery is cheap for Biden. It costs the rest of us plenty. We're feeling it each time at the pump. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Uh, and you may wonder, you know, how it is, where, where your money is going when you're at the retail, when you're at the, uh, at the either on online retail or in-person retail. Is your money going to causes that maybe you don't necessarily agree with? There's a way to find that out. And it doesn't, it doesn't involve interrogating the poor clerk that's across the counter from you. You can find this out on your own by doing some really good research. And Rebecca Hatfield is um, the, the the president of Second Vote, which is a, uh, uh, an organization has a website up there for its users to find out where your money's going and how to shop your values. And Rebe Rebecca, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, I, you know, I would say 15, 20 years ago, 
people would mm-hmm. not have necessarily thought that this was a necessity, right? Because mm-hmm. there was there was much less politicization of ordinary everyday transactions. You didn't go to your butchers and 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 say, you know, what's your policy on Ukraine, for instance, or or anything else like that, because it was just sort of assumed that politics was politics and commerce was commerce. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah, not the world. Yeah. No, businesses were not engaged in politics back then like they are now. Right. That was then. This is now. Everybody is. Everything's been politicized. And so a lot of times you you find out that places where you spend your money, they're using that money to fund um, causes that are antithetical to your own beliefs. Right. Absolutely. And that's. That's shocking to a lot of consumers. A lot of consumers are not aware. Um, They've used certain retailers or certain um, services for years and they've just, you know, known them. They've been comfortable using them. They've been convenient. And I understand that it's, it's our culture. Our culture is centered around consumerism. We are consumers and um, that's, that's what we've been driven towards and marketed to. And that's what we've come accustomed to. So it's understandable. Well, I mean, yes, and it's understandable, and and I think uh, it's, I think people are now getting the idea that this is the world that we're living in. But I don't think that they feel like they've had uh, really good tools uh, to navigate that world, right. right? That's what second vote is. Secondvote.com, by the way, is where you can find two nd vote.com. Second vote is the URL where you find this. And it says, go beyond the ballot. Your first vote is at the ballot box. Your second vote is with your wallet. And join our efforts in exposing corporations and organizations that are funding leftist advocacy. But even if you're not necessarily up for a crusade, at least you have the tools now to (laughs) determine where where that money might be going. Right. Well, and here's the thing. We don't promote... Um, any type of boycott. That that's to me is very yeah. counterproductive. That's that's not going to work. That's been proven not to work. Our job is advocacy. We want to give you, we want to empower the consumers, give you the information, and let you decide what you want to do about the information. If you want to choose to make a change, that's your business. If you want to not make a change, that's your business. Our job is just to simply inform. And uh, we score companies based on six uh, fundamental issues: life, basic freedoms. Second Amendment, Civil State Society, Education, and Environment. Now, of course, um, life is going to be our um, heavy-hitting issue. That's the one that we hold the highest regard, of course, because you cannot undo that um, deed. Once you give to a pro-abortion entity, once you make that donation or uh, make that policy, that's not something that you can necessarily um redeem yourself on that's a that's a very distinctive um, issue for us and we we weight that one very heavy whereas environment we believe that we should be good stewards of what the lord has given us in our in our creation and that one is not as heavy of a weighted one Um, so we we score on six issues we give a composite score for free and then if you subscribe you get to see the individual scores so our approach is more let's come together let's bring our voices together because individually we don't sound very loud but if we come together go through secondvote.com let's let's leave a comment let's send a message to those companies and say hey we don't like what you're doing because as in a in a capitalistic type environment which i don't know if we're totally capitalistic but you know capitalist system we're going to presume that we are okay 
because we're not totally socialism yet, but let's let's just presume the consumers are the guardrails. And if the consumers don't speak up and say enough, stop, no more, then the corporations, the world corporations are going to continue to do whatever they want to do. So we have to come together and use our voices and our vote with a wallet, which we can do daily. That's something that you don't just do once every four years or once every two years. You get to do that every single day and make a difference. That is where we can come together by purchasing, sorry, and then also by um, sending letters, sending letters out, sending emails, telling them we don't like this. We don't want you to do this. This is not in alignment with what we want to see. And like you said, years ago, everyone just businesses did what businesses do. And that's what we celebrate. The neutral companies that are just in business to do business. Right. Um, And I also want to make a, a, can't I just eat my waffle uh, reference? I'm going to get back to that in just a second. (laughs) But first, let's. They're kind of like mind your nuggets. I want to tell Chick-fil-A. Mind your nuggets. Mind your nuggets. Mind your nuggets. Well, I mean, so I'll, 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 I'll finish the joke. I was going to, I was just going to tease this, but you know, Barack Obama, um, when he was running for president, um, you know, when you're running for president, you're pretty much on all the time. And he was at a, I think he was at a waffle house, but he was at, he was having breakfast someplace and reporters were bugging him about something. And I kind of felt bad for the guy, um, in a way. And he was like, can I just eat my waffle? <laughs> and and the reason why I bring this up is because Waffle House actually gets a really good score. It's a, it's on the front page Ooh. of this. It's one of the Ooh. examples that you have on there. Waffle House gets a, a 4.14. We'll get to what that means, but you can tell it's good because it's in green. Um, yes. Some of the other scores are in red. That's bad. Just in case you were wondering, that's bad. And um, and then there's, a, there's sort of an amber, which is uh, in between. But before we get to that, before we get to the scoring and all that, uh, let's find out a little bit about you, um, Rebecca. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and how you got to this. All righty. Well, my background, I'm being Hatfield, like as in related to Devil Ants Hatfield and the Hatfield McCoys. I'm I'm legit. Oh yeah. Like really. I wondered. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's funny because certain generations, when you say Hatfield McCoy to you, and they're like, I, I don't I don't know what that is, but. You know, our generation, we're familiar with that. Yeah. So my family's from West Virginia. My dad is a preacher, a Baptist preacher and missionary. And I grew up you know, helping my family in that effort. We actually lived for a while in the British Virgin Islands. And that was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that. Yeah. Um, so I'm married and have seven children. Homeschooled them. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very blessed. I'm very blessed. In my professional career, I've done everything from retail management, accounting, sales, technology sales, um, consulting, that type of thing. I really loved my time with uh, an organization that helped bring businesses together and networked together. I was an ambassador for that organization and loved the, basically the let's lift each other up, let's give and um, try to network together to, instead of competing against each other, Let's see how we can help one another. And that really aligned with my values. I like to I like to see the conservative movement instead of stepping on one another to get where they want to get. I want to see the conservative movement. Let's let's lock arms. Let's move forward instead of uh, vertical or right. horizontal. Let's, let's go forward. You know, let's let's not let's not compete. Let's let's actually come together and and make a forward motion here. And that's that's my mission. Well, and and I think that this is a, a great way to do that, right? I mean, this is it's it's not confrontational. It's yeah. it's informative, and it's <laughs> as you say. I am also not a believer at all in boycotts. I think boycotts are are 
are almost entirely ineffective. They usually only demonstrate the impotence of the people who are calling for boycotts, which is also counterproductive to whatever mission that you're trying to fulfill. This is different. This is just allowing people to to have more knowledge, to give them the knowledge that they that they they should have when entering into these entering into commercial relationships, but then leaving the choice for them. I mean, it's really just an informational um in, uh, engagement that people have at secondvote.com. I'm going to keep saying that 2ndvote.com. Secondvote.com is where you find this. And I, I should ask you, do you have an app or is it just on the website? Right now we just have a website. We are so close to launching our app. It is, it is just, it's right there. We're just right there, but we will have an app. Absolutely. <laughs> and the app is going to look sleek and beautiful. And um, I'm so excited to launch it. I'm, I'm just like just beaming with pride and I can't wait. And um, yes, we have wonderful products coming out. Um, can't talk about them yet, but stay tuned. Um, we we want to take our, our consumer product offering uh, to a step further. And we also want to venture into the business offerings. We have a small business alliance that we're going to be working on. And that is going to help small businesses. We, we want to promote um, give local, shop local, love local, and grow local too naturally those things will do that we want to promote local small businesses because we believe those are the things that are going to help this economy we need those small businesses and they're going to they're going to feel this economy you know way more than the large companies we know that right so we've got to we've got to be you know very loyal to our companies what do you what do you do when what do you typically do not you but consumers what do they typically do when you want to give a christmas or a birthday gift card where do you go do you go to your local merchants do you go to your coffee shops that are owned by people you see every day not, not usually no yeah. not usually no no and, and that a lot of it is because of the marketing strategies they've been you know they've been conditioning us they put a lot of money into it and that's understandable we've got to rethink our thinking what is this purchase going to do for my country what is this purchase going to do for my values what is this purchase this one right here and every purchase you can't necessarily always have that you know, whole theological or whole political, you know, rundown. Sometimes you just have to do the best you can. Right. If you're, you know, 12 o'clock at night, your child has a fever, Walgreens is the only thing open, go get your child, the, the colony or whatever. Right. You know, yes. I understand that, you know. But each one needs to be, let's break this down. Do I really have to go to Target? You know, I, I'm not going to cast shame. I'm, I'm not going to. But what they're openly doing right now is just so abhorrent. It's, it's disgusting. So, well, um, and again, I mean, I think also when you're talking about, you know, you do what you're doing the best you can, right? By the way, mm -hmm. just to let you know, uh, and I'm not giving away secrets here because I, I, I don't have a subscription login for second vote, at least not yet. Um, you can actually track this stuff just on, on thing. you can get the actual overall score. You just can't get the breakdown. Target exactly. Corporation, 1.72. This is not a good <laughs> score. <laughs> just, exactly. Just to let people know, it's. Not a good no score. Secret. Yeah. It's no secret. Not a secret. Um, no. But I mean, it's you. You you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here, right? So there there may be things that you can only get from certain places, right? Maybe um, maybe you know you can only get a particular. Maybe you only have access to banking where there's a Wells Fargo. Although I kind of doubt that that's the case, but. Um, they also don't have a very good score here, but I'm just going to use them as an example. And I mean, if that's the case, if you're, if you're, if you're, you know, your employer does business through that, if you've got, uh, I mean, 
So maybe that's one area that you can't really touch, but there's other things that you can do. And everything that you do with intention mm -hmm. is increment incrementally um, exactly. increases the benefit of this. So mm -hmm. you shouldn't, I'm, I'm, Rebecca, I'm sure that you're, you're agreeing with this. You shouldn't approach this saying, if I can't run everything I do through this, maybe I shouldn't even bother to start. No, 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 no. Do what you can, right? Right. Just do what you can. Do the best you can. Um, it, it's it, it, small baby steps, but then look at what you're doing and see where you can improve and see where it's realistic to improve. As the economy uh, continues to tank, I'm pretty sure there's going to be families that are like, I just need to put food on my table. I'm not going to be able to necessarily go to a store that's scored higher, but I'm not going to be able to get the groceries that I need. So every day, just do the best you can. Make right. the best choices you can. And that's what we advocate. And that's why we want to give this information so that they can take the information and do what they feel is best for their families. Um, you know, it's it's going to be an individual choice and we celebrate that. Exactly. And, and this is you do it a little at a time. You start getting more and more used to being able to do those things with some sort of intentionality. Getting back to what you're talking about with small businesses, though, because I think we kind of skipped off that topic and I want to get back to it. The okay. reason the reason why you want to focus your attention on small businesses as much as you can is, first off, it's healthier for your local economy. It Certainly within your own community, it's healthier. Secondly... Uh, there's there's just simply more visibility as to where that money is going to go. And thirdly, is small local businesses are not likely to be spending a whole lot of time doing a whole bunch of um, performative politics with whatever profit that they're making. They're like they're more, much more li uh, likely to be also spending that profit locally to put food on their own tables and and mm -hmm. to and put their own kids through school, either homeschooling mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, so that's money that not only is being put to use in your community, but is visibly being put to use in your community. And you, and you get to know the people in your community, which is also a much healthier way to uh, to enter commercial life. So there's all sorts of reasons to to favor that. And Second Vote can help you do that too, I guess. Yes, we are. And and the app is going to be able to ge geolocate so that if you go to another next town over or out of state, you'll be able to find those local businesses as well. So, and, and here's the thing, when you, when you do shop local, you know, um, I have a volunteer that was telling about a story about buying a refrigerator and she had a horrible experience with a big box um, seller and uh, she finally had to go to a local um, repair shop to get her refrigerator repaired. And, and here's, you know, the big box don't sit next to you in church or go to, you know, the t-ball games with you. They're not going to be able to look you in the eye, you know, <laughs> in the community and see you. And, and have to kind of have some accountability there. But those small local community businesses, they're, they're going to eventually run into you in the store. They're going to eventually see you. They're going to have to, you know, contend with you. Right. With you. Right. So there's a lot more accountability. This is true of government too, by the way. I'm, I'm a big, yeah. I'm a big believer in subsidiarity for the same reasons. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, if you're, even if you're, even if you're, even if you're a liberal, maybe you want to find out where the <laughs> money's going there too. Even hey, if you're a yeah. centrist or a libertarian, maybe you and, and that's the reason why you actually score on a number of different, um, a number of different topics. And if you're a subscriber to secondvote.com, to ndvote.com, you have access to those breakdowns and gives you a little bit better way to analyze what it is that you're looking at and what are you, what values you prioritize. Uh, yeah. Not just, not just, you know, 
Rebecca Hatfield, who's got, you know, you know, outstanding priorities and values. Maybe your 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 priorities are a little different though. And this allows you to to take a look at the underlying data. If you subscribe, it allows you to take a look at the underlying data. Yes. Well, the subscription will give you what each individual score is of the six issues. Now, the Investor Council membership will give you the research, which is everything that went into those scores. But the uh, subscription level will give you the um, six issue scores. So, for instance, if you go and uh, go back and look at Target, you will be able to see if you had a subscription, which issue helped to make up that composite score, which ones were they um, high end, low end, which ones were hurting them. But you would not be able to see the research behind those scores unless you had an investor council membership. So that's the highest level that we have right now. And that would show you all the research behind that. And basically everything that we put into our research and to our scores, we, we apply it the same way to every every entity. It's going to be whether it's conservative or liberal, it's it's the same across the board. It's an algorithm, and um, we we are not going to you know, score based on how we feel. <laughs> it's right. It's a, and the more that you go on with this, obviously, the more the more places that you're going to be able to score. You're going to be able to do more more research, especially as more people subscribe. It's going to give you more resources to to do that. I, I mean, I just looked up grocery. As a mm-hmm. category while we're talking here. That's how easy it is to do this, folks, at secondvote.com, 2ndvote.com. Can, you can have a conversation with somebody as um, as sharp as, as Rebecca yeah. Hatfield and still take a look at the data that she's giving you. Um, <laughs> and, my, you know, I'm in Central Texas, so H-E-B, um, yeah. the, they actually have a pretty decent score, 2.97. Now, is it, is it, is it five? I mean, it's, it's, it's not great necessarily great what's the top score in this is it well, five? five is top five okay. is top and three would be ideal they're a little bit below the three three would be neutral three is they're just doing their business they're not getting involved i think hub does a little bit of have some um, displays in their store that are less than ideal from what i've been told I, I don't i haven't been in one yet but um you know three is we celebrate the threes because they're they're just focused on doing their business and that's wonderful that's what we want them to do five is excellent they contribute to wonderful causes. We love what they're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Three is thank you for just minding your chicken. That's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of get the idea that HEB is trying to mostly mind their mind their chickens anyway. So, um, yeah. but uh, at least they're not Aldi's. <laughs> yes. Then there's Aldi's, which is a I think a sister company to Trader Joe's. So there we go. Yeah. Yeah, and Trader Joe's actually Trader Joe's is is has got. It's got a substantially higher rating, although still below three. But right. to Aldi, I just don't. Li- I mean, I just don't like the Aldi's experience anyway. It has nothing to do with their politics. I just people oh, say, really? "Oh, you got to sh- go shopping at Aldi's." I've been in there like three or four times. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> this is not, not my experience. You. Not for not me. For not yeah. for me. But these are the things. Now I can. Now I can say, "Hey, look, it's got a bad score at second vote." That's the reason why I don't like them. <laughs> yeah, don't go there. Don't go don't, there. Don't go there. Um, all right. Well. I, Rebecca, how can people, um, I mean, first off, it's very easy to to subscribe or donate or do both at secondvote.com. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that people can do to help get the word out? Uh, you have social media campaigns going on right now? We absolutely do. We're on social, many social media outlets. Anything that they're already on, look for Second Vote. And also just like, comment, and share. We have a volunteer program. Anyone that wants to get involved, we would love to have them to help with 
social media campaigns to help write articles, make videos, anything they would like to do, and just give feedback on the website. Also, we encourage everyone to not only vote their values with their wallet, but also register and vote. That's something that's very important to do. It is. <laughs> and three actions that they can do. Be informed, take action at secondvote.com and vote. Vote. And it says it right at the, at, uh, it says it right on the front page. You've got two votes. The first one is at the ballot box. Yes. Your first vote is at the ballot box. You got to be going to the ballot box. Uh, but your second vote is with your wallet. And that's, uh, you do the, you do the ballot box two or three times a year. Um, dep- you know, you should be involved in local elections, by the way. Subsidiarity doesn't doesn't just apply to uh, commerce. It doesn't just apply to government. It actually a- applies to your own civic engagement as well. But your second vote's with your wallet, and that's every day. And you thank definitely you. want to know that. Well, Rebecca Hatfield, I want to I want to thank you so much for talking with us today. And um, again, give us the uh, give us the URL. <laughs> Absolutely, secondvote.com. Secondvote.com. That's where you've got to go. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. All right, folks, stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. And joining me right now is Deacon Stephen Gradonis. He is the proprietor behind DecentFilms.com. Does a lot of really great movie reviews. Does a lot of other things as well. And, uh, and he's here to talk to us about all that. Deacon Stephen, welcome, welcome to the podcast here. It's good to talk to you, Ed. It's always good to talk to you. I love the, uh, credibility bookshelf that you have there. And unlike some people, oh. it's an actual bookshelf. It's not a, it's not like a zoom picture that you're using for, you know, the fake background. <laughs> no, no, no. These are, these are the books that I, I, I reach around to, uh, all the time while I'm working, whether it's, I, I got my, my homily stuff is over here and my film stuff and philosophy is over here. Well, there you go. I, I mean, you've even organized it. I mean, uh, I hate to tell you, I have a very narrow shot of my desk here. Uh, just to the uh, what would be to the to the right of the screen that you're looking at is all the mess that I've piled up, so it's out of the camera. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> almost up to the it's almost up to the upper upper bookshelves. But don't tell my wife. <laughs> I'll clean it up by the time she sees this. By the way, all right. So. We're here to talk about films, and you know we've we've talked on relevantradio.com, relevant radio on the air um, about films in the past, and it's so much fun. I'm just glad that you're here to discuss this. You've just written um, uh, you've just written a review of the film Lightyear. This is off of the Toy Story franchise, and I have to lead this off by saying I am the only person in America that's never watched any of the Toy Story movies. <laughs> Not any of them. Not any of them. It's, it's, it's not even by choice. It's just I never got around to it. You know, I had grandkids and I thought, well, at some point I'm going to pick this up. And it just never came up. And uh, yeah, so I am I you know, am Toy Story Toy deficient. Story, when Toy Story came out, I was five years out of art school. And I had taken history of animation courses as well as uh, film history courses. I was a huge animation buff. I was... This was in the middle of the um, the Disney Renaissance, and yep. so I was really excited about um, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. Not so much the Lion King, but this was the year that Babe came out, and also Toy Story, the original Toy Story, and it just it it blew me away. It was it was the arrival of something completely new and and unprecedented, and Lightyear. It it looks back to that period 
but um, but without really recapturing that sense of revolutionary change at all. And I will tell you, I like animation. I love animation. I, you know, it, it's just it's odd. I've I've watched. I think every other Pixar, um, at least the the Pixar releases that went into theaters. I don't think I've seen a lot of the home, uh, you know, the home cinema type releases. But um, I think this is really the only Pixar series that I've completely missed. It's it's it's. I have no idea what what it is. I will chalk it up to um, just fate, misfortune, the Holy Spirit, whatever it is. I haven't seen this thing. Um, well, it's, it's worth noting that the original Toy Story, the 1995 Toy Story film, um, really kind of set the tone for the era of Pixar greatness, not only artistically, but also morally. Because in, in sharp contrast to what was happening in American animation at the time, and the American animation scene was much more limited at the time than, than it became, um, you know, five or ten years later, it was very common for the protagonist of an animated film to be, you know, the most righteous character, or at least the character who's adjudicated to be correct in the end. The character who gets everything that they want. You know, you think of the Little Mermaid defying her father in order to go fall in love with a human from the surface world. And in the end, her father, you know, gives her her heart's desire. And Toy Story was really about a character who loved someone very much, but who was driven to selfish extremes um, out of jealousy and, and out of um, um, lack of, of insecure is out of, out of insecurity. Right. And, and, and following Woody on his moral journey of taking selfish action toward buzz and being rejected by his friends and finally having to come to grips with his insecurity. That, was also revolutionary at the time. And, and Pixar has done that in a lot of the movies that you have seen as well. Right. And I mean, look, I mean, I, again, I just, I, I, I have no, I have no explanation for this, but I do know that, you know, I do know of the Toy Story universe. I know what Buzz Lightyear is in that, um, in that universe. And the fact that he's getting his own film, I mean, this is, um, it's been a few years since the last Toy Story entry, if I recall correctly, um, this is the, you know, this is sort of like the backstory film, right? This is the one that sets up the, you know, sort of, it, it's not really a prequel as much as it is just sort of a backstory, sort of like Wolverine was for, you know, the Marvel, uh, for the X-Men series, that type of thing. It's, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that because it's supposed to be not another story in the Toy Story universe, but a movie in the Toy Story universe. The interesting. Idea is this is the movie that the Buzz Lightyear action figure is based on. They're calling it Woody's, or they're calling it Andy's favorite movie or Andy's Star Wars. So what Star Wars was for my generation, um, this movie is, is meant to be for Andy. Oh, this is interesting. Now, it's an interesting idea. Now, I've I've read your review, which is going to be posted shortly. Um, it will be posted by the time this, this podcast comes out anyway. You're... This is a bit of a miss for you, apparently, on on how this executes on screen. That uh, I think that the quote that you have there is that if this is Andy Star Wars, Andy had an impoverished childhood, which is I, a great line, by the way. Th thank you. I felt I felt really bad writing that line, but you know that's that's my job. I have to be honest, and and the reality is that this is a story that sets out to establish a character who's been established in the in the um in the mythology of, of the toy story films as 
um, uh, as the ultimate space opera hero. He's like Luke Skywalker and Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon all rolled into one. And what we get in this story is this incredibly static kind of um, um, downbeat and, and really rather small tale about Buzz making a fatal mistake that strands a thousand humans, mostly scientists and engineers, on an uninhabited planet in uncharted space where they remain stuck for decades. And that's the movie. The movie is about Buzz trying again and again and again and again and again to get them off that planet and just failing again and again and again. And, you know, there's supposed to be some character development there about how he learns that you can't do everything yourself. You have to be willing to let other people shoulder the responsibility. You can't feel guilt about the mistakes that you've made in, in, in the past and let that deprive you from um, living your life now. Um, you have to bloom where you're planted and, and, and things like this, all of which is fine, but it's, it's almost like they set out to, to make an anti-space opera as the origin story for Buzz Lightyear, which just makes no sense to me. Well, yeah. it's very disappointing. It doesn't make sense to me. And I mean, just as somebody who's outside of this, um, you know, outside of this, universe right outside of the toy store universe if you're setting out to explain why a child has a an action figure that he considers a heroic action figure i mean i don't know that you how you explain that by showing that he is a, you know a massive failure in the movie that is supposed to have spawned the character the the action figure that he plays with you know through the um through the other movies i mean that's a weird choice. It, it, it might make for a good choice for a completely new franchise, right? Some sort of, you know, new look at a space opera, you know, some other type of, um, some other type of science fiction, not even necessarily franchise launch. Maybe it's just a one-off, right? Uh, but, um, sure. but it, it, it's a, it's a weird backstory to explain a heroic action figure. That doesn't make any sense to me either. What I, what I think happens is there's this kind of recursive quality when you get too many layers deep into a mythology. We saw it happen with the Star Wars prequels. Uh, we've seen it happen with the Nouveau Looney Tunes cartoons. You know, the original Star Wars was inspired by all kinds of things. I mentioned Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, but there were also World War II dogfighting um, stories, um, the the samurai movies of Akira Kurosawa and, and wuxia fiction um, um, westerns, a lot of westerns in there. Um, the Lord of the Rings, the the once and future king, all of that went into Star Wars and made Star Wars great. By the time that Lucas got to doing the prequels, he was really only looking at Star Wars, and that's a much smaller world than the world that had inspired him to make Star Wars in the first place. I think you have the same thing happen with Looney Tunes, where the original Looney Tunes uh, directors and, and writers and storytellers, um, Chuck Jones and, and all of those, they were looking back to um, the silent comedians, to, to Keaton and Lloyd and Chaplin. They were looking back to vaudeville. They had all kinds of things inspiring them, the Marx Brothers and 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 all you look at the later Looney Tunes, they're only looking at Looney Tunes cartoons. And I, I think what's happened here is you have the people who made the, the Toy Story movies in the first place. They're looking back 
to science fiction and to westerns. The, the last act of Toy Story 2 is a brilliant homage to the western genre. It's a really thrillingly executed, um, you know, take on the sequence where the cowboys ride their horses up to a train and jump onto the train, but set, but done, it's done, it's done very differently. Right. And, and I, I think if that kind of nostalgia had gone into making this Lightyear could, could have could have been something really powerful as it is it's really almost a kind of a deconstruction of what i think i think it should be about well and i think that that's a real impulse that gets um out of hand when you're especially maybe even when you're when you're dealing with children's entertainment i mean first off i guess i gotta ask is this aimed at children or is this aimed at deconstructing the thing for the adults who might have grown up watching this? I mean, 1995 was when Toy Story first came out, I believe. And that's, you know, I hate to say it, it's 27 years ago. The people who, you know, people who were, you know, 10 and 11 years old uh, in 1995 are now, you know, <laughs> pushing 40. Um, I, I, I certainly, you know, children keep watching these, keep watching these. So it's not, you know, it's not as though... It was last seen in 1995. Children watched it, you know, last year. But I mean, is this aimed at children? Is this a deconstruction for adults? What do you think the intent was for this? I think Pixar movies have always managed to straddle that line. They mm -hmm. they make movies to entertain children, but there are also deeper adult themes. And I think that's the intention here. This is definitely a movie for kids. I saw it with my nine-year-old son. And of the two of us, he enjoyed it quite a bit more than I did. <laughs> um, he was especially interested in the time dilation phenomenon that when Buzz goes on these near light year, near light speed missions, he travels for four minutes, but four years pass on the planet. And so everyone he knows is is rapidly aging because he keeps going on these. And, and Matt, Matthew had no idea that that was real. And we were talking about relativity and Einstein and the Big Bang on the way home. It was a great conversation, um, a real good conversation starter. But um, something that I think uh, Catholic parents especially uh, and Christian parents will want to be aware of is 10 years after Frozen and the discussion about the maybe kind of sort of um, um, queer themes in the background and the yep. increasingly explicit uh, elements in, in Disney and other franchises. There's a very open, um, acknowledged lesbian relationship between Buzz's um, a black female commander and the woman that she marries and they raise a son. And then most of the adventure is Buzz and his former commander's granddaughter. So um, that's, you know, they're out and proud in this movie. And and so that's something to be aware of. Yeah. And it's going to turn off some, uh, it'll turn off some parents. Um, and, um, and I do, I did recognize those themes in frozen. Um you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I, I, I think that uh, the more you do that sort of thing, the less it becomes um, accessible to to certain audiences. But it's a very big audience. There's a very big potential audience for all of these films. And so, you know, um, just as long as people understand what's in it before before they get out there, and if they don't like that type of thing, they can avoid it. Um, I love Pixar films. So you're talking about straddling the lines on on these things. And I mean, I could tell you. A couple of mine were Inside Out, which I thought was a brilliant film, you know, it, and I mean, I mean, I had tears in my eyes as an adult watching Inside Out because I'm first off, I'm recognizing all these, you know, themes of despair and 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 
and being caught up in um, in 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 your own cycle of emotions and and also this really uh, very strong theme of wistfulness about lost memories and and lost portions of your child. It's just a brilliant film. It's a brilliant film, and I, I'm sure that those things go right past the children and really touch the hearts of adults, especially you know soft-hearted grandparents like myself. <laughs> So, um, but, but, but the kids latch on to what they can. Right. And exactly. as they grow up with the films, the films become deeper for them. I've watched my kids go through this process with these movies. I watched my son, David, for instance, um, who's now in his 20s, uh, go through the process of growing up with Brad Bird's The Incredibles. Oh, and, yes. You know, and both films. Identifying with, with the superhero action and and as well as the family themes. But getting to a certain point in his you know early teen years where he suddenly realized, oh, the tension between Mr. and Mrs. Incredible, there are there are concerns about infidelity here, you know, keeping secrets and and there's right. there's you know about marital struggles that that had had not had not been there and but but done in a way which is completely appropriate for younger children who aren't ready to accept those themes yet. Right. And I think maybe what you're saying here is that Lightyear misses that boat just a little bit here. Not not that it's necessarily going to not work for kids because obviously it worked for your son, but maybe, maybe the adults in, in the audience are going to be uh, left scratching their heads at the end of this, wondering what the, you know, what the point of that was rather than just do that sort of homage to the successful space operas like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and even Star Trek for that matter. Um, it worked for my son up to a point. His exact, he, what he said was, it was good, but not great. And he kind of hedged it when I asked him what kind of, what letter grade he would give it. He said, B minus, C plus. So Interesting. <laughs> well, you're raising a film critic. What, I mean, Deacon Stephen, how could we su be surprised by uh, <laughs> by that? And so the review is up for Lightyear. Go check that out at uh, decentfilms.com. It will be up by the time this podcast uh, airs. And um and look, I mean, um, I'm sure Deacon Stephen, you agree with this. Don't let um, a reviewer scare you off of a film. If you want to go see this, the point of the review is just to alert you as to, you know, what you can expect. And um, with very few exceptions, and sometimes there are a couple of exceptions, like don't ever go see this film type of reviews. <laughs> and I've written a couple of those myself. Um, uh uh, for the most part, the, you know, I think you'd agree with me. The review is there to uh, inform viewers as to what to expect when they get to the theater. Well, to to inform viewers, also to model a certain way of thinking about movies. I, right. I hope that readers of my review come away with, in in at least in so, some of the time, with insights that they might not have otherwise had. Not only about a particular film, but also about ways of engaging films about things that movies can offer or ways in which movies can go wrong that maybe they hadn't thought about before. But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. I always tell people, I am not the Pope of movies. There is no Pope of movies. The Pope is not the Pope of movies. <laughs> and, and nobody nobody has to agree with me about any movie in the world. I, I hope that I offer a way of thinking about movies that's interesting and and helpful. And whether you agree with me or not is a completely different question. I agree. And still don't go see The Shape of Water. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, you can 
We could we could spend a whole podcast agreeing on the shape of water. <laughs> um, uh, a film that I reviewed, I said it was so bad it was destined to win an Oscar, and <laughs> turned out to be right. <laughs> All right, but but we're we're talking about family films here, and you know you're talking about heartwarming family films, films that really touch that you know that family part of your heart, and of course, there's no film that better models that than uh, The Godfather. Uh, wait, what? <laughs> Well, it, it's certainly a, a family. It film. is a family <laughs> film, right? Yes, yes. It's the family. Family with a lowercase f and with a capital F. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, you and I had a, a great conversation about this on the air. And I, I did kind of want to come back to it because we only had a couple of minutes to, to go over that when we were uh, talking on Relevant Radio. But you were talking about an alternate ending to The Godfather. And you wrote about this at DecentFilms.com, which I knew about from the book. I hadn't realized that they'd filmed, or I didn't remember that they filmed it because it was actually in the saga. But it really does change the direction of the, of at least the meaning of the film, I think, by the fact that they chose the, the ending that was specifically written for the theatrical release of The Godfather. And this is, of course, the famous shot of the door slowly closing on Kay as, right. as the... Capos are coming in to kiss Michael's hand um, after he's killed the heads of the five families and consolidated all the power in New York. Um, now, The Godfather is there's lots of different ways you can describe The Godfather. I know that some people consider it an allegory for, um, you know, corporate America, I guess. Um, I, I just consider it sort of an allegory for um, how power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And um, the book is, I think the book is actually less coherent than the movie. It's one of those rare occasions where the book is, um, the book is an inferior product in, in terms of storytelling than the movie, because the movie is just fantastic at telling some, this story. Some people find, it's it, often when the book outshines the movie, it's because of the added psychological depth of the insights that you can't get into in film. But in this case, I think you're right. I think that the book strips away a lot of unnecessary stuff and comes up with something that has a, a, a purity and a clarity uh, beyond the novel. Yes. And 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 I think that it, part of this too is, of course, the style of the film, the the way that the actors bring the characters to life. They're just, I mean, there's just, there was a certain magic to this. And the ending is actually part of that magic. Now, I, I'm going to let you sort of talk about what the, uh, for the, for those who aren't, who haven't read the book and aren't aware of what the, the novel ending was. Uh, it's an interesting thing to consider because it would have made the movie, perhaps ironically, maybe a little bit more Catholic with the original novel ending, which they did shoot. This, this, I was very happy when I, I learned about this because it offered me a way into a movie that I have to confess to you has been intimidating me for 20 years. As, 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 a, as a film critic, uh, you know, The Godfather is one of those movies that you have to tackle, but this is a very, it's when a movie has been this revered for this long, it can be very difficult to find your way into talking about it. And I wanted to talk about the Catholic themes in the movie, um, you know, and obviously the place to start with that is the famous baptism massacre sequence. And, and I wanted to talk about uh, Coppola's Catholicism and what he brought to it in the way of perspective as a filmmaker. But it wasn't until I discovered the alternate ending and the theological significance that it casts on the ending that he actually chose that I really found my way into the story. So what Mario Puzo wrote in the novel is a sequence in which Michael's wife Kay 
um, after realizing uh, that her husband is in fact the new um, Don Corleone, that, that he is the new head of the Corleone crime family, um, we, we see her in the Catholic church with Michael's mother, uh, Vito's widow, and they're praying and lighting candles. And so Kay has taken her place in a long line of mob women whose husbands do terrible things behind closed doors. But, but and, and this is this is Vito's ethic. He does terrible things behind closed doors, but he also believes that a man who doesn't spend, it's not there for his family, can never be a true man. So he opens the office door, he comes out, and he does this throughout the whole grand opening sequence. It's Connie's wedding, his daughter's wedding. The movie starts in the office, in that closed office, where as the father of the bride, he can't refuse anyone who comes to him with a request. It's a Sicilian tradition. Right. Um, but he doesn't stay in the office. He goes to take family pictures. He doesn't want to take the picture unless Michael is there. He goes in and out. And this is crucial for Vito. It's, it's his self-image. It's his identity. He believes that he can be a good man by being there for his family and then still do the things that he does as a mob boss behind closed doors. And it, this is this this compartmentalization is really an illusion. It's it's fundamentally a lie. And we see his his failure as we realize, you know, what happens. None of his children turn out well. Um, that right. all, all of all of them end badly. So he hasn't been the family man. He hasn't been the father that he thinks he has. And the only reason he has that illusion is that he dies, you know, while he's still in a position where his whole family comes together to mourn him. And he's playing uh, with his grandson. Yeah, it, it was, it's the idyllic death. It's, it's he couldn't have asked for a happier death on his own um, presuppositions. Right. But you see very quickly that M Michael is not able to carry on that tradition. And part of the reason, and this for me is the significance of the fact that they chose that alternate ending. You know, Kay is Michael's second wife. His first wife, who was a good Sicilian girl, would have been the perfect um, mob boss. She would have joined Michael's mother in praying in church and not asked too many questions and been obedient and submissive and quiet and raised him a nice Italian family. And Kay, who was a New England wasp, was not about to do that. And so for her, it's much more significant when she finds herself on the outside of that off on the outside of this office door and the door is closing on her. And that's the moment that we realize it's not just closing her out. It's closing Michael in. It's closing him in from his family, isolating him from his family. He will not be that good father in the mode, even, even to the extent that his own father was able to do. And that's why his marriage falls apart. That's why, you know, we see that uh, in the end, he winds up even murdering his own brother, his whole, the whole moral um, um, system that his father bequeathed to him completely falls apart. Because it has to. Because it, because of its internal because of its internal contradictions, absolutely. And, and this brings me to something else, and it occurred to me, but we didn't have enough time to to pursue it when I was talking to you on Relevant Radio, um, which is that there's a quite a, there's quite the same structure going on in the Sopranos. Now I love the Sopranos. I watched it from beginning to end. Uh, in fact, I own all was it 6.2 seasons or something? Cause that last season was a six season part, part one and six season part two, rather than calling it a seventh season. Um, but it's the same dynamic. Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't have the same, um, it doesn't have the same call outs to Catholicism, although there's certainly 
religious figures in there, you know, the first couple seasons, the, the local priest who has a, you know, sort of a crush on Carmela and all that kind of stuff. But the whole structure of the Sopranos is that Tony's a mob boss who's in therapy, right? And this therapy continues from the first episode to the last episode. And he is trying to deal with the conundrum of exactly what you're talking about in The Godfather, which is that he is compartmentalizing his life as a mob boss and as a family man. And he is trying to move back and forth through, through, those, through that office door, if you will. And he has this illusion of himself as a family man first and a, a, a mob boss last. And this goes on for quite a while. And it's, it's a tremendously entertaining series. There's all sorts of different plots, all sorts of different subtexts to keep you entertained. But this is the main structure of the series. And at the very end, you have this see or the series finale, I should say, not season finale, but the series finale that people really puzzled through, right? This whole don't stop believing sequence at the diner and the, the sudden blackout. And it comes, and I mean, I've, I've argued this now for however long it's been since the series ended. It comes right after um, his doctor refuses to treat him any longer. They have a falling out and she refuses to treat him any longer. And to me, what that final blackout was, was his, was the end of, of that compartmentalization, his realization that what he is, is actually just a mob boss. He's a terrible person and his family, his, his family life is not going to save him. He's just a terrible person. And it takes seven seasons to get to that. But I think it's the same structure. And it's one of the reasons why I think both the Godfather series, or at least one and two, <laughs> and the Sopranos are so compelling is because as 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 Christians, as Catholics, um, we tend to compartmentalize our sins as well. It's very difficult for us to integrate our uh, our fallen our fallen nature into into who and what we are. Because we want to put that aside. Well, that's not who I really am. Who I really am is this really great guy over here without accounting for the things that you do in, in, in the fallen world. And I think that that's really one of the most compelling, one of the reasons why we find that type of thing so compelling. You just used a really important word, integrate, which, which relates to the virtue of integrity. And I think integrity is one of the least appreciated virtues because we water it down to a synonym for honesty or reliability or something like that. But when you think of integrity in its non-moral meanings, the sense is that you hear it used in engineering or medicine, structural integrity or skin integrity. Integrity is that property in a complex reality which binds it together into a stable, cohesive whole. And when you look at anyone's anyone's life is a complicated reality. We all have different social selves. We exist in different social situations. We talk to different people who call forth different things from us. My children have often commented that they can tell who I'm talking to on the phone by what voice I'm using. And it's not something I do consciously. Right. But we we code switch. We we are, you know, our, our siblings elicit something from us, people at friends at church, something else. And that's not necessarily dishonest or or morally problematic as long as all of our different social selves have a fundamental underlying moral reality. If there's a moral cohesion among them, the problem comes when we give ourselves permission to do things in certain settings 
that you wouldn't do in another situation. And, and, you know, you, you become a different moral person and, you know, you see that pattern playing out in the lives of super predators of people like uh, Theodore McCarrick and Bill Cosby, you know, and people who know them well and attest, no, no, this is a good caring person. They would never do anything like that. And I don't think that they're faking. I don't think that that's not true. It's just that, you know, in this situation, somebody like Bill Cosby becomes a genuinely caring, empathic, uh, generous, em- em- you know, human being. And then in another situation, he becomes a complete monster because of the that lack of integrity, that, right. that, that binding force. Integration, the lack of integration. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that you know, you see this throughout the Godfather saga. You see it throughout the Soprano saga as well, and um, and you see it not just in Tony Soprano too. You also see it in Carmela. You see it in the kids to some extent as well, um, because the kids realize what dad does for a living and they start compartmentalizing. And so it's it's it is really a it's really I think a metaphor for a very fallen world. So I I honestly think when we start discussing this, um, the Godfather, the Sopranos, that that moral, uh, that moral structure is really, I think, what calls... There's two things, I think, that really call to us in entertainment. One is moral structures. The other one is redemption. And what's really interesting about The Godfather is you don't really see a lot of redemption. You see, if you, if you stick around for the entirety of Godfather 3, uh, good luck to you, by the way. But um, if you do, you see Michael Corleone trying to get to redemption and completely failing because he hasn't integrated. He hasn't recognized that he's an awful person yet. Um, and he goes to the whole uh, act of confession. Has. I think he's realized that he's an awful person. Um, I just I, I don't think he knows what to do about it. Yeah, I mean, he, you see that whole scene where he, he's conf- he, he's not really in confession, but he's confessing to um, the cardinal who later becomes supposedly becomes you know, uh, Pope John Paul the uh, first that he murdered his brother. Right. And, and what does the Cardinal say to him in that? And again, I mean, this is Godfather three and a lot of people are going to say, ah, you don't need to talk about Godfather three, but I think it's an important moment. And he says, he no, says, it's absolutely an important moment. He says, I don't, I don't sense repentance in you. So I can't give you absolution, but he, he does, he does absolve him, but it's this ambiguous thing. It's ambivalent thing because he says um, your sins are terrible um change is possible but you don't believe that and so you're not going to change right but nevertheless in spite of that he does give oh that's right yes you're right yes you're because, right he does yeah he's he's hoping that he's wrong but he's not wrong and what happens in the end is he is he reverts right back to all the terrible things that yeah. that that was is the structure of his life anyway something I, that i threw out at the end of our talk on relevant radio and i'm just going to throw it out here again is the, the significance of that closed door at the end of the Godfather, yep. I think there's a beautiful commentary on it at the end of another film by a filmmaker who has interacted with Coppola throughout his career. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, uh, which is yes. another, it's an, it's an epic gangster story that follows a gangster throughout his whole life from the time that he's a young man until the time when he's in a retirement home. And um, it, it, he goes through that same process of coming to realize that he was never a good father, that nobody wants to have anything to do with him. There's no one in his life that he can turn to. All of his stories about the old days, they exist only in his own head. What you realize in the last half hour of The Irishman is this whole exciting story has been inside 
um, our protagonist's head and that the inside of his head is a very lonely place. And he's got this whole, um, um, this whole thing about burial and it just seems so final to him. He doesn't want to be buried. He doesn't want that door to be closed. It feels to him like the closing of the door of hell. He wants to be in a mausoleum. He wants to be, you know, at least then there's a building. It's there. It's, it doesn't feel as final to him. And he walks through these attempted confessions with a priest. But just like um, Michael Corleone, he doesn't feel sorry. He kind of, he almost wishes that he does, but he doesn't know how to. He doesn't know how to feel sorry. But he wants... And he begs the priest in the last moments of the film, he says to him, just leave the door open. I, I don't like you to close the door. Leave it open a little bit. He, he doesn't know how to reach out for God. He doesn't know how to reach out for his family. He knows his family's not coming. Part of him maybe wants at least to leave the door open for God. And, and that to me is the antithesis of what happens in that last shot of the Godfather. The yeah. door closes. This is, you know, it's not necessarily Michael's damnation for all time, but this is the door. This is the door closing to hell. And the door, as, as C.S. Lewis says, uh, the door to hell is locked from the inside. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we're we're really out of time here, but you can read more from uh, Deacon Stephen Gray Dennis at decentfilms.com. And is are you on Twitter at Decent Films or? Yes. Yeah, at Decent Films. OK, so I had that right. OK. Um, you can do that. Where else can people follow you? Uh, I'm also at Facebook, both under my name and also I have a decent films fan page. Excellent. Well, go sign up for his fan page too, folks, and be sure to keep watching, uh, that space at decentfilms.com for the latest in, uh, film reviews, very much oriented to, uh, alerting parents as to what is, um, what may or may not be appropriate in the films that he's reviewing. So be sure to take special care for that. If you are concerned about that for you and your children, uh, Deacon Stephen Gray Dennis, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Thank you. Ed. it's been a blast. When we come back, we'll have more from the Ed Morrissey show. So stick around. Thanks for tuning in to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you liked what you saw, be sure to subscribe at each of the different platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube, and we're at the Town Hall Media Player. So be sure to subscribe. Subscriptions are important. Really do appreciate that. It's free. Uh, be sure to like the video if you like that as well. We want to get the word out as much as we possibly can. Really want to thank you for being with us. And while you're at it, if you're at any one of the town hall websites, especially hotair.com, be sure to subscribe to our VIP program or our VIP, VIP gold program, which has uh, extra benefits for our subscribers. That is a paid subscription service, but that money goes to fund important uh, initiatives such as Julio Rosas's on the road journalism, first person journalism, journalism you can trust from the border, from the unrest in cities and all other sorts of things. We do all sorts of fun things with our VIP gold uh, subscription members, including our VIP gold chat that I do with Cam Edwards on Wednesday afternoons. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Each of our sites have their own live chat editions and their own uh, streaming shows for VIP gold members. So be sure to subscribe to the Hot Air uh, VIP, VIP Gold, which goes across the entire Town Hall media spectrum, and especially to the Ed Morrissey Show podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.